are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, an exploration of the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, featuring key people on the ground in Ukraine and around the world. I am Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest is Britta Elvanger of the Ukraine Relief Project. She is located in Kriviri, is that right, Brita? Yes. Where at For Peace Now underscore news is based, continuing to update the world on the number of those killed in an anti-corruption roundup, as it were. Brita, welcome to Ukraine 242. Thank you for having me. Would you describe your organization? Yeah, so Four Peace has been around since the early 2000s, and it originally started in Cambodia, working there post-genocide, and their start was in reconstruction and economic recovery, but at the most communal level. And then it expanded into environmental projects and also expanded into different countries in Israel. It worked with various Palestinian Arab, Israeli, and Bedouin communities. And then there were some economic, sort of like artisanal support grants for um, local artists in Ukraine. That program started in 2014. And then with the full-scale invasion is when For Peace sort of created a, a new project called the Ukraine Relief Project, and that was what I started under Four Peace. And Four Peace is all volunteers, so there's no sort of administrative costs or incomes coming from this. With um, the full-scale invasion, I was already in Ukraine. I have been in and out of Ukraine uh, for the past 10 years. I was living there in Kyiv, going to school, as you said, in an anti-corruption program at Kyiv Mahila. So what the Ukraine Relief Project does, I would say, is responds to the war exactly as Ukrainians who are experiencing it are responding to it, which I think is pretty critical. The way that you go about answering questions like, what do you do when your country is being invaded? What do you do, you know, with this past couple of weeks with the Kohovka Dam being destroyed? The ways that you go about reacting to that are really different when you're just on the ground amongst Ukrainians who are directly experiencing it. I was in Ukraine amongst Ukrainians who were heroically responding to the war, but in very direct ways because Ukrainians are reacting to the war in every sphere. So we have a medical program. And in the medical program, the things we do range from providing first aid kits to soldiers on the front then the next level is sort of direct collaborations with frontline medical evacuation units. We have partnerships with a couple of specific doctors and surgeons that are located in hospitals where they're stabilizing the wounded. And then our big project that we're doing is, you know, the big, big need looking forward in Ukraine is Ukraine is a country full of veterans of this war, both civilians who have been traumatized, both physically and psychologically from this war. And then 
clearly soldiers who are dealing with, you know, a lot of whether physical or psychological symptoms and wounds from this war. And so the need already to start putting in place communal responses for rehabilitation is huge. And so we helped our partner purchase a building and we're going to start up our own rehabilitation center down in Krividi. Then we have the sort of the frontline military element, non-lethal aid, which you just had lists of what people needed. You know, they needed body armor originally. They needed helmets. They needed camo clothing. The early stage of the war was um, really where most of what people read on the news of how Ukrainians were responding a lot of that was thanks to people's individual social networks that were responding and kind of getting people what they needed and where they needed it much, much faster than bigger international logistical networks could handle. A recent initiative that we started doing was repurpose grad launchers that they find in positions that Russians have left. And so then they'll take them and they'll refashion their pickup trucks to be sort of mini grad launchers. And there's local mechanics that will do that for you. Can you please explain what grad launchers are? It's a type of missile and they're used for various regions. But one of the main ones is as air protection. Air protection is that level of grassroots where if you help a troop put one of the attaches to the back of their pickup truck, then that's really what air protection often means for civilians in a community. The current case that we have is they've picked up a couple, four or five of them at yeah uh, abandoned sites and then they've been taking them and putting them on their cars now speaking of cars you're doing something about cars right now aren't you (laughs) yeah some units want pickup trucks some want jeeps i'm right now in warsaw looking at the unit that we're right now trying to help get a car they're an aerial recon group so they're sort of the ones that provide aerial oversight. And so what they usually need for that is a big bus, you know, like a nine person seater. We'll bring that in. And then once they take the bus, they'll refashion it and they make them into sort of portable offices for the front line. And they'll have, you know, like computers set up inside and they have a Starlink attached to it. I understand (laughs) you had an interesting event over the weekend with your car. Tell us about that. Like Ukrainian social networks, and maybe this is, I'm just experiencing it amongst Ukrainians right now. But I think that this could probably extend it to like how social networks globally work in crisis. But I've just been blown away with truly what you can do by just knowing the quote unquote ordinary people and kind of following a social chain of recommendations of who to talk to. So for example, we have this aerial recon unit. So this unit that we had, we started working with the a volunteer who was helping us figure out what kind of car they needed. And then I I came back out into Warsaw and this volunteer's name is Ruslan. Ruslan gave me a number for somebody that speaks Polish here who could help me talk to car owners. We'll call him Pablo number one. Uh, (laughs) I don't know much about cars myself, so I wanted somebody who could help me check out these cars when I went in person. This is how Ukraine's working right now. Screenshot one was of a person's name and a number, and it was like Vasil Oksana's friend. So I call Vasil Oksana's friend, and <laughs> Vasil Oksana's friend says, oh, you know what, I'm not like in town yet, I'm coming back a little bit later, but let me give you my friend's number, Pav- so this is Pablo number two. This is going to Pablo number two. So right now, like, I'm, what, four degrees away from somebody I know personally. <laughs> I've not met any of these men, but they're all helping me find a car for this unit. 
Once I call Pablo number two, I say, hi, Pablo number two, Vasily just gave me your number. And he's like, I don't even know what Vasily you're talking about, but <laughs> sure, like, let's, let's go find a car for you. So on Friday, you know, he picked me up after he was done working because he's, you know, everybody has their own lives still. He owns his own um, car mechanic shops in the area. So he picked me up. We drive for 40 minutes to where this bus was located. And I, don't know, I was just really touched this guy gave up his free time to help a total stranger who like he didn't even know who had recommended us to talk to him but that's sort of the mood right now is all hands in let's help this side of ukraine is amazing they have this social network that extends across ukraine and then also goes into europe because people are you know migrating for work they've moved they've emigrated so the Ukrainian social network is both very, very localized with knowing how to get targeted aid to a specific place in Ukraine, but they can get that very quickly through an, their friend network that then just all of a sudden means that they've got friends that they're talking to in LA or you know Chicago. Again, this is an, an ordinary man who grew up in Krivirich, emigrated to Warsaw, started his own car mechanic shop. And he starts telling me, in the past year, I myself personally have fundraised for 30 cars. That's incredible. And, uh, incredible. And, he's, and he does that just on his free time, you know, and on his own dime. And I just asked, how do you fundraise for that? And he's like, well, you know, you just, you ask your friends and then you put aside a couple, in his case, Zloty, every week. 30 cars from one mechanic in Warsaw. I'm always buoyed. There's a lot of work to still be done in Ukraine. I don't know. I mean, ordinary people are worth investing in anywhere. And life is worth investing in. What a great story that is. Can you tell me what you know about what's going on right now in Ukraine? The only way that you really know what's going on is if you're personally involved in something. And that's not impossible to do. Right now is still the beginning of the counteroffensive. There's a lot of troops that are still preparing to go out. And there's a lot of troops that have been out in the front for a long time and have been taking heavy hits. On the Ukrainian side, these have been rough days still, fighting-wise. You know, they're losing a lot of people. They're losing a lot of equipment. You mentioned mm -hmm. before the Kahovka Dam. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could update us on what has happened now in the aftermath. It's interesting to me how what's happening in one place in Kherson is not the same story as what's happening in a village a couple kilometers down. So in Kherson proper, as I understand, the partners that we're working with there in the aftermath of the water seeding, it's still very much just like an initial emergency cleanup. Every, there's silt everywhere. The houses have been destroyed. People are already moving back, though. And I find it pretty amazing that the number one request right now is building materials. People are asking for help with cement, wood, metal bracings for their homes. So that, I mean, people are already reconstructing and recovering their homes. Within like four days of the dam being destroyed by Russian occupiers, the Harrison military administration reached out to the emergency relief responders, humanitarian responders, and just told us our main warehouses are full, which is a pretty amazing testament to how fast all of Ukraine immediately responded to the Bahovka Dam catastrophe and responded. But the question now is how to effectively distribute that, because just because they were overwhelmed with aid in the aftermath of the dam doesn't mean that the necessary recipients have gotten aid. But if you go even a little bit north already in Kherson, 
I hear a different story with our partners that we work with there where some areas are responding to a lack of water and they're looking into building dams or making wells. In some areas, again, it's kind of dealing with the aftermath of silt and then the, re- the receding river. One of the Hromada leaders down in Kherson, he made a little Zoom video today and just said, look, we still have the Dnipro. And he showed us it's much, much smaller now where he was. But he was trying to give a positive message to his local community. He said, it's not as scary as we think it is. We do have water. And he kind of walked through his town and showed where there was still a river. That's not at all to say that the situation is fine. I just want to emphasize with that anecdote, Ukrainians are actively finding ways to recover from that. Then further northeast, like into Dnipro area, was also heavily hit with water shortages. And so the contacts that we have there with trying to figure out moving forward, how we can help with some sort of new stage of our water program is support with, they're called um, Svetlovini in Ukrainian. And I think that it's not wells, but it's sort of just like water infrastructure. They need help expanding them. There are different places that they can get water from, but it's just quickly adapting and, and reworking their water infrastructure to do so. What are people doing about drinking water? Drinking water is definitely an issue. How to make something into drinking water is you attach a reverse osmosis system to an already existing well. A lot of places right now have set up sort of portable water tanks. There's a couple of bigger aid organizations that come through once or twice a week and fill up those water tanks, and that's how they then provide potable water. But I think longer-term solutions is um, a filtration system that they can attach to a well or one of those public water access points that they have in Hiromadas. That's their ideal of how to deal with, with drinkable water. This is Anne Levine reporting from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thank you for listening. Our guest is Britta Elwanger of FourPeace.us, an NGO supplying humanitarian relief to military personnel and civilians during wartime in Ukraine. Britta has a degree from the National University of Kiev Moila Academy in their flagship anti-corruption studies program. Originally planning to do research in environmental, social, and governance services, she switched to full-time humanitarian aid after the Russian invasion in 2022. Britta Elwanger, it's incredible to hear that the citizens of Harrison and the area affected by the dam are already rebuilding, cleaning up, and returning. It's such a great illustration of the Ukrainian ethic, getting things done. I'd love to ask you about you For me, the main original draw was I just made wonderful friends in Ukraine. I always wanted them to be part of my life. So when I came back to undergrad in California, I switched all my studies to be about Ukraine and Eastern Europe. And then after my undergrad, I moved back to Kyiv and um, started to study in Kyiv. Where did you study? I was at Stanford. And then... 
After Stanford, I am at Kibmo Hilla Academy. Well, I'm really anxious. I hope I'm not taking too much of your time. I want to hear about Israel. So I was there for all of my high school years, and I think that it certainly provided a pretty intense early experience with understanding crisis. And I had friends who were Israelis and very patriotic Israelis, and I had friends who were Arab Israelis and were very patriotic Palestinians. One of Four Pieces projects is amongst the Bedouins down south. It led me to just value that and believe deeply, like if you want to do anything, you just have to work directly with people on the ground. Do you know anything about the Ukrainian diaspora in Israel? Oh, gosh, there's just so many elements of it. <laughs> I mean, even uh, this is like a funky anecdote, but even in the uh, unrecognized Bedouin village, there were Ukrainians there. You're kidding. Uh, yeah, that was for me like there are Ukrainians who are like second, third wives of Bedouin men. Um, oh, so that my was, gosh. That was a pretty interesting like all of a sudden I had a reason to speak Ukrainian in an unrecognized village in Israel, which was crazy. Yeah, you know, growing up in Israel, a lot of my friends are from the Ukrainian diaspora. I even, I mean, I think that there's there's like a specific element of academics that looks into like what the Ukrainian identity looks like when they were post-Soviet emigres, you know, how they kind of adapt more maybe of a Russian identity at a time and how that shifted over the past couple of years. I'm absolutely gobsmacked that you were in a Bedouin village where there were Ukrainians. <laughs> it's just mind-blowing. How did they end up there? Do you know? I mean, I guess that this is a situation where Ukrainian women thought that it would be a better choice for their life. So they made the choice to get married and move to Israel. What do you know about relations between the Russian diaspora and the Ukrainian diaspora in, in anywhere for that oh. matter in Poland in Israel anywhere that you've been what I've observed myself is a lot of Ukrainians that emigrated to Israel like they were primarily Russian speaking so my experience what 15 years ago in Israel when I was living there was there was a different identity of the, the like Soviet Union diaspora versus the Ukrainian or the Russian. But I do think that is changing now. I mean, a lot of the people that I knew growing up in Israel were Ukrainians, but they all spoke Russian. When I moved to Ukraine for that first stint as a volunteer, I specifically only learned Ukrainian. And they thought it was the most adorable thing. <laughs> like it was the <laughs> who was, you know, learning that was speaking their native tongue and they were the ones who spoke Russian. And so there was just fun moments of when I came back from being a volunteer there where they would just say, you know, in very slow Ukrainian, like, and now we will speak Ukrainian with you. <laughs> um, but they were, you know, these are people who were originally from Kiev. They were originally from Donetsk. I'm much more plugged into just Ukrainians in Ukraine than diaspora communities. What is going to be the big news this week in Ukraine? I'll reduce that into like, what do I know that the people I work with will be doing this week? Exactly. What I know is going to be happening the next week is that the war is going to continue. I, I would love if it didn't. 
As long as the war continues, there are people who are dying. There's people who are losing their homes. There's people who are figuring out to do about the fact that they don't have water. And Ukrainians just keep on trying to figure out ways to respond to that. So whether it's, you know, fundraising to get a unit, a drone or a drone signal amplifier so they don't lose their drones on the front line, whether it's helping and supporting a medical unit that's dealing with a lot of wounded or if it's working with people that are relocating back home after the past two weeks, you know, in Kherson. Working with water, I think, is going to be a big priority for us in the next week, finalizing a water program down in Nipopetrovsk region and Kherson, and figuring out what we can do with our budget. Again, on this like topic of recovery and reconstruction, people aren't waiting for the war to be over to recover and reconstruct this Ukraine. This past week, there was the recovery conference in the UK. There were some critiques about the conference. It was closed. How many, you know, Ukrainian voices were actually highlighted in the conference. One of the critiques that was given at this conference was like, what does recovery look like when you put it in the hands of women versus when you put it in the hands of, of men? And it's very different. Like, again, these are women who don't have homes. But the number one thing that they want to work on right now are like the public goods. They want to support their teachers. They want to support the school. They want to do public water. So you have like Christina, who's just walking us through and, and she's so passionate about like water pipes. We just need water pipes and, you know, the public utilities in the town. What I'm going to be doing for the next week, for the next month <laughs> is directly working with locals who are either responding to the war or already recovering the country from war. And I would just invite people, please support for peace because we're there with them. That's fantastic. It's so inspiring that people are returning and rebuilding. It's incredible. What I'm always blown away by is like when you're at the, the grassroots level, like a, lo- a little money goes a long way. We talked to a group of teachers in this village. $2,000 got them internet, it got them laptops, and it got them enough like office equipment to start teaching class online. The Ukrainians are so great at using whatever they get, you know, how little, how much, whatever it is, and directing it in such an effective way. It's really impressive. They really are. I 1000% agree with you on that. I was blown away with the Herson emergency response. Irina from Safe People Worldwide sent me back the official list that they had gotten on what was needed. So it was, you know, boats, uh, motor, boat motors, the waders, the waterproof shoes. And then we were trying to budget for, you know, these boats that were needed. But in the meantime, like this is an example of how Ukrainians stretch stuff. Because in the end, we didn't have to buy all these boats because in the meantime, a ton of other Ukrainians who knew that we were working down in Kherson just called me and said, Britta, like my uncle, my dad, my sister, like we have boats, like we'll give them to you. Just just get them down there to the to the evacuation units. So an initial like budget that was, you know, in the tens of thousands of dollars, if we'd had to buy this stuff, we ended up getting donated by Ukrainians. That's why donating to organizations like ours like it really does goes far because we're not working like in isolation from local communities we're working with them and everybody together when you amplify those efforts like 
you get a lot done and very directly. It's just not complicated and it's, um, it ends up being like an impressively low amount of money that's needed for any specific you know, task or emergency response. They don't give up. They, you know, and as long as they don't give up, then um, there's so much to do. So, and it's so easy to do it. That's what blows my mind. In all of these places, there are solutions to that. They just need money, which is sort of our, our main message. And the, the money that you're thinking isn't as big as you might think. Speaking of fundraising, how do you fundraise for the work that you're doing? <laughs> I attempt to write things on Facebook, Twitter. It's just through sort of public knowledge and people reaching out and being very generous with their own dollars and dimes. That's how we fundraise at this stage. Social media mainly. Social media mainly, yeah, and and our own networks, but we're always looking for new ways to learn how to fundraise. I think that I'm pretty good with knowing how to help in very direct ways in Ukraine because I work with Ukrainians and like they just tell you what they need. But learning how to fundraise and get more donations is a is you know the sky's the limit with how much more we could do if we could fundraise more. What is the best way for people to reach you if they want more information or if they'd like to help out? We have a website, so www.forpeace.us. And they could also always reach out to me directly, which is Britta, B-R-I-T-T-A, at forpeace.us. Britta Elbanger, thank you so very much for giving me so much time. Thank you. What an extraordinary conversation that has led us all around the world and to places (laughs) I wasn't expecting to go. Lighthouse by The Hard Kiss. 
Our thanks to Britta Eldanger of 4Peace.us. That's F-O-R-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. An NGO supplying humanitarian relief to military personnel and civilians during wartime in Ukraine. To see pictures of our guests and to access our complete library of past shows, go to Ukraine242.com. I am Anne Levine, the host and producer of Ukraine 242 from WOMR in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Editing by Fred Portnoy and by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording Michael Levine. This is Anne Levine. Thank you for joining us. Until next week on Ukraine 242.